The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Um... Hello, everybody. Uh, this is, it always feels uh, like being on RTE. Uh, this is our um, bi-weekly uh, research seminar of the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies. My name is uh, Dr. Clemens Rutner. I am the director of research and the host of this uh, wonderful um, talk show in times of COVID-19. Um, we had a great uh, crowd last time. Um, Today we might have less people because uh, we have a very exclusive topic, uh, but I'm very, very curious to learn everything about it. Because when I, when I saw the title, I couldn't believe and say, wow, this is really uh, something. Um, namely, we get a talk on Babylonian poetry. Um, and our speaker today is uh, Dr. Martin Worthington, uh, who specializes in the ancient Middle East. Uh, he joined Trinity from Cambridge uh, in uh, August uh, 2020. Welcome, uh, a very cordial welcome to you, Martin. Uh, we haven't met in real life, only uh, on the internet, but uh, hopefully we will soon. Welcome to our school, welcome to our audience. Uh, Martin is an associate professor in our department of um, Near and Middle Eastern Studies. And his most uh, recent book is, uh, is it Eas, Eas, uh, Duplicity in the Gil Gilgamesh Flood Story. Uh, it uh, was published with Rutledge in 2019. Um, and he will tell us more about Sargon's riddle, uh, which uh, is uh, how he keeps himself busy in times of the great uh, lockdown. Martin, it's a great pleasure to me uh, and, and to all of us uh, to listen to your talk on Babylonian poetry, which uh, as I've learned is the first attempt to analyze it with uh, the, the tool of, uh, of uh, poetry analysis rather than doing the, the, the classical philological uh, stuff, which of course you must be very good at too. Thanks a lot. And uh, we are very curious uh, and, and uh, for your talk. Thank you, Clemens. So first of all, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much to Clemens and Quiver to for organizing this. Um, for reasons of bandwidth, after saying hello, I will make myself invisible and then I will share my screen so you can see my slides. So my video stopping, um, screen sharing is starting and we go over to PowerPoint. Um, if anything, like if I just conk out, hopefully I'll be interrupted and somebody will tell me. So, um, yes, performance and interruption in Babylonian narrative. So we're obviously going back a long time ago to a group of fascinating writings that stem from uh, the ancient Middle East. So if I click down here, before we go into performance and interruption, it might just be worth asking what is Babylonian narrative? So Babylonian is a language related to Hebrew and Arabic, died out over 2000 years ago, and it was attested for a very long time round about 1900 BC down to the year zero, which of course doesn't exist, but it's a useful point to talk about. So almost 2000 years of literary history, most of these narratives are couched as poems. And of course, poetry is a very difficult concept to define, but for ancient Mesopotamia, for the world of ancient Babylonia and Assyria, 
this isn't a major problem because they can be defined as compositions written out in syntactically complete lines. So every line of your manuscript is also a clause or a sentence or a group of clauses or sentences. And uh, my slide should say verb rather than word. In normal prose Babylonian, the verb goes at the end of the clause and in poetry it doesn't. So when you have these two things going on, you say, aha, this is a poem, even if poem is not a concept that was current in the Babylonian language. Examples of these narrative poems include the famous so-called Epic of Gilgamesh, but also a poem called Error about the god Error, who is the god of plague. We'll be talking about that later. And the poor, poor Man of Nippur, now available as a YouTube film, which is a comic folktale. And we'll also talk about that. So these are the raw materials that we're dealing with. Why talk about interruption? Well, first of all, if you have a bunch of literary characters who are going to interact with each other, you might expect a priori that interruptions should happen. That's part of the nature of human communication. However, if you go and read the various things that people write about Babylonian narratives, many of which we've said are poems, you find that actually interruption is rarely mentioned. It doesn't seem to be part of the analytical toolkit for ancient Babylonian narratives. So it's very rare to find people talking about interruption or the possibility of interruption. If you go into a neighboring field, such as Homeric studies, you find articles entitled Interruption in the Odyssey, or indeed book chapters called Interrupted Speech in Greek Historiography. So there are fields, and many others, that's what the three dots signify, who have thematized interruption and problematized it and asked who interrupts who and how and why, questions like that. So this is something that hasn't really been done uh, for Babylonian poetry. And one question is, well, is this because it doesn't happen or is it because it happens and we haven't really noted it or talked about it? From this stem interesting issues of etiquette and characterization. Who's allowed to interrupt who? Who does interrupt who? And are we supposed to view that as good or bad? So there's a whole complex of questions about communicative behavior, which interruption can be the lens for. So that's why we're taking it as our theme today. This gives rise to questions of the order, did characters interrupt each other under what circumstances? And if so, why, how, and what does it tell us? The problem in searching for interruptions in Babylonian narrative is that we don't have explicit indicators of it happening. If you think of how it's signposted in novels today, there are things like dashes, which signify interrupted speech, or dots that normally signify self interrupted speech, people pausing in mid-sentence. We also have the verb to interrupt. Babylonian doesn't. So we don't have explicit indications that we can at least recognize so far that say one character interrupted another character. The punctuation doesn't tell us because Babylonian doesn't use punctuation, nor do we normally have utterances that stop in midline or mid-sentence. So you might say, well, if that's the situation is that the end of the story? Do we not need to look any further? My answer would be no. Um, what we've just seen does not gain, say, the possibility of it happening, or indeed the possibility of people thinking that it happened, which are two different things. Because this question of interruption is not an absolute question, but it has to be refracted into different levels. So the first question is, did the author intend for this character to interrupt the other character? Another question is, once this poem had been around a while and interpretive communities of consensus had formed around it, what was the consensus about that passage? Did people traditionally think 
of this particular juncture in a narrative being interruption. And then we have the question of individual readers as distinct from interpretive communities, people who came to a manuscript they hadn't seen before and had to deal with it and read it and make decisions of their own. So the question, is there interruption happening in this juncture, depends from whose point of view, from the authors, from putative consensuses that built around it, or from the point of view of individual readers. It's worth highlighting, therefore, that the second two bullet points are not necessarily the same. Individuals did not necessarily think uh, the same as the communities they were part of. Which brings us on to the question of, was there scope for individual people having ideas about poems or literature in ancient Mesopotamia? You might say, oh, but there's oral tradition and these are old stories and everybody knows them and they've all heard them a thousand times. And so it's very difficult to have original ideas or individual ideas because what might have been your individual ideas are forestalled and swallowed up by the community you're part of. So we might have this tension between the world of pervasive orality on the one hand and then individuality on the other hand. So let's try and look at this under the lens of two different phenomena. So looking on the oral side, it is an oversimplification, but a useful simplification, to say that no one in ancient Mesopotamia ever wrote anything ever. Now, of course, this is massively untrue because we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of tablets to prove that people did write. But if you consider that they were spread over an enormous time span and so many people, and then you start to inquire into the place of writing in those societies, you see that Although it was very important, it wasn't actually very present in the lives of people, even people who were literate. So, of course, farm laborers who probably weren't taught to read and write saw very little of writing in their lives, but they were administered by written tablets. So these tablets had power over the lives of these people. But even in the lives of the people who were writing the tablets, writing was probably quite a small part of their life. So this is all on the side of the oral world, leaning towards this idea of community interpretation, and everybody simply knowing the stories, a bit like us and fairy tales. On the other hand, when we look at individual manuscripts, we can see that there are telltale errors of various kinds that suggest that the people who wrote the manuscripts that we hold in our hands today didn't know the story terribly well. And I've got an example at the very end if people want to see it. What this suggests is that there were people who came to manuscripts, as it were, cold, who simply had to deal with the wording that they saw in the clay and didn't know what to look for in the first place. People like this would have had to make up their own ideas about the passage that they were copying or reading. So despite this pervasive oral world, this, this interpretive mishmash going on, there was also space for orality as attested to by errors that show that people came to manuscripts cold. Of course, this idea of people reacting to literature on an individual basis, somebody holding a tablet and forming their own ideas about what's written on it, doesn't happen in a vacuum. We have to go back to a wider context of cultural norms. So you will gather we're approaching this whole question of interruption from quite a far away point of view and inching towards it with a series of methodological preambles. So we've talked about the fact that um, here's not an absolute question, but there are different viewpoints on whether interruption might be happening, and we'll consider examples later. We talked about communities and individuals, and having talked about individuals, we're now saying, but even individuals operate within 
cultural norms. So we can take an example of this from the Mesopotamian world. Um, so was interruption acceptable? What were the cultural norms pertaining to interruption? And then we have to distinguish what happened in real life from what happened in poetry, because that might be more stately and therefore different cultural norms might apply, which tells us that these individuals responding to particular passages might have had to be guided by principles of decorum, which is the same applying to you or me when we read a work of literature. We read it in the light of the principles of decorum that have been inculcated into us. So we can examine this whole question of cultural norms by looking at questions and what happens to those in Babylonian narratives and poetry. So there is in fact a general pattern which applies to questions across the 2000 years of Babylonian poetry. So if we look at non-rhetorical questions, which is to say questions that really want to elicit an answer, a piece of information, it is rare in Babylonian for an inferior to ask a question of a superior. There are instances where this happens, but if you look at them closely, then you find that they're subject to special explanations, e.g. aggression, an inferior asking an aggressive question to a superior. The same happens in administrative correspondence. So if you take volume 27 of the series Archive Royale de Marie, the archive from the, set, from the city of Mari in the old Babylonian period, roughly 1800 BC, you often find people writing to the king, let my lord write to me whether I should, but they don't actually phrase it as a question. They don't say, should I? They phrase it in this indirect way. And similar things go on at board meetings today. Generally, it's the senior people who ask the questions of the junior people and not the other way around. So questions in several cultures are a vector quality that goes in a particular direction. Questions tend to go downward, but not upward. So what we have here is clearly a set of cultural norms that it extends across real life and literature and influences both domains, which also means that if we had an individual Babylonian who was reading a manuscript for the first time and came across an inferior asking a non-rhetorical question of a superior, they might have gone, gosh, this seems a bit odd. What's going on? Are they being rude? So these are the kind of issues which can carry over to the question of interruption. And what we were just saying about this questioning can be tied to a further phenomenon. So if we take the verb sha'alu, which means to ask in Assyrian, and we go and look at the corpus of letters from the Neo-Assyrian Empire from oh, roughly 700 to 600 BC, we often find people who are saying, let the king, my lord, ask someone about something. So for example, in the series State Archives of Assyria, volume one, letter 235, let the king, my lord, ask him if he is not a cohort commander. The authors of the letters to the Neo-Assyrian king, therefore, were happy to suggest to the king that he should ask a third party something. Strikingly, we detect an asymmetry in usage because those same writers, when they were writing letters, are loath to attribute the idea of asking to the king in relation to themselves. So they don't write, the king, my lord, asked me, citing a previous letter. Instead, they say, the king, my lord, said or wrote, da-di-da-di-da, and then a question follows. So for example, in volume 10, letter 72, our writer says, as to what the king, my lord, wrote to me, what do you take the present month to be? We have 
the king asking the question in a letter, the letter was written to our person and it's quite clearly a question. The person is now about to answer that question and they are going back to the king having written it. They're citing the king's question. But they're not saying, as to what the king my lord asked me, they're saying, as to what the king my lord wrote to me. And when you start multiplying examples like this, you see this line of division between what the king did vis-a-vis -vis me and what the king did vis-a-vis -vis someone else. And when we're talking about someone else, it's entirely unproblematic to have the king asking. But when it's me, then the king doesn't ask, the king only says. So the action of Sha'alu was attributed to the king only in connection with third parties. And what we have here is some sort of cultural inhibitor going on. And we could theorize what and why for a long time. But again, we have a set of cultural norms, which is deducible from the writings we have, and which in turn would have informed the reactions of the people who wrote and consumed those writings when they were responding to their own writings or indeed to poetry. So let's now go back after this methodological digression to the question of interruption in Babylonian life. So first of all, it's very hard to study it in the daily life of ancient Mesopotamians because we can't see real life conversations. And when people write letters to each other, it's almost impossible to interrupt because letters are written at a temporal remove when each of the two parties is able to say as much as they want to. So the nature of our sources means we can't look for interruption in the written documents of daily life, which in the first place are letters. We can look for it in conversations in literature, but there are of course a number of, a number of filters between what happens in literature and what daily life was like. They're not necessarily the same. So we have to recognize the possible importance of cultural trends impinging on literary production. We have to recognize that what we see in poems might be different from what was in daily life, but it's hard to be more specific about that. So poetry is going to be our interruption stomping ground. Let's now make another methodological detour on the way to our interruption citadel and talk briefly about performance and the choices that this entails. So I'm going to use the word performance to signify giving a voice to written words. And I'm going to say that this can happen in your own head or when you're reading something aloud to yourself or when you're reading it aloud to others, or indeed when you formally dramatize something, e.g. in the theater or whatever equivalents of that existed in antiquity. So I'm using performance in a very broad sense, which is not that, it's not what people normally think of as constituting a performance. And so I'm not going to be concerned uh, with questions about choreography or costumes or gestures or sounds or lights, which are all very important and interesting questions, but they're not related to what I'm interested in, which is this idea of voicing the written word. So not so much that as how the import of written words changes with how it's delivered or pronounced. And this can happen with reading aloud or in the performer's head. So performer there simply means reader or speaker. Now, sometimes there are utterances where not much changes. If you take the cat sat on the mat, you can try and read it a thousand different ways, but it's not going to tell you much that's different from the basic import that you see with a neutral voice. Sometimes, however, there are much more interesting effects and the manner of delivery 
can change the import of the utterance or the effect which the utterance produces. What do we mean by import? Well, various things. There are some changes in import which wouldn't affect the translation, such as the line being delivered ironically. The import of the line changes because now it's ironic, but the actual naked sense of it doesn't change. But there are also changes to import when the translation would be affected, e.g. if you're going to alter clause boundaries or even word boundaries, running two words into one to make a new word. This is a realm in which modern day actors are fantastic. One of the skills a skilled actor has is to spot the potential in the written word for how something can be read aloud to make a surprising or startling effect. So here's an extract from Richard III, Act 1, Scene 2, and we're witnessing a conversation between Richard III, often called Shakespeare's greatest villain, and Lady Anne, whom he wants to seduce. This is an extremely intense conversation where Lady Anne is vigorously repelling Richard's advances, calling him a foul devil who hath made the happy earth his hell, filling it with cursing cries and deep exclaims. There's a lot of that. And she says, as thou dost swallow up this good king's blood, which his hell-governed arm hath butchered. Richard replies that the lady knows no rules of charity, which renders good for bad, blessings for curses. Lady Anne counteracts, saying that he's a villain who knows no law of God nor man, no beast so fierce, but knows some touch of pity. So a very tense conversation. I once saw this performed where we were all sitting on the edge of our seats. And then in the next line, the actor didn't say, but I know none. He said, but with a ludicrously high pitch and drawn out, drawn out but, which sounded vernacular and terribly comical in the context of all this intensity. And that meant that our attention was relieved. We all had a good laugh. We shook ourselves slightly, and then we got back into the conversation. There was nothing in the line that said it had to be delivered like that, but there was nothing in the line that said you couldn't deliver it like that. So here was a performer who changed the import of the line, who changed its function in the moment without varying the wording by introducing a pause and changing the intonation. So here we have an element of humour being injected into the line that creates a tension valve which alters the audience's whole experience of the dialogue. Somebody who witnessed a performance of the dialogue without that effect would come away with quite a different sense of it from what me and my fellow viewers had. But this doesn't only work for humour. So here's an extract from a Mesopotamian, in fact a Sumerian composition, Gilgamesh Enkidu and the Netherworld, which you can find online in the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature in English translation, as well as the original Sumerian. So this is a conversation between two characters, one of whom has gone down to the underworld, that would be Enkidu, and Gilgamesh, who's asking him questions about what he saw. So, did you see the leprous man? The reply, he twitches like an ox as the worms eat at him. Did you see him who fell in battle? I saw him. How does he fare? His father and mother are not there to hold his head, and his wife weeps. So, these are discrete extracts from that long dialogue, and there are many more examples of this type. And the point which is being made cumulatively is that people are well off in the underworld if they have children to look after them. So those who do will rejoice, whereas those who don't will virtually starve. And then we get on to this question. Did you see my little stillborn children who never knew existence? 
I saw them. How do they fit? Now, I once heard this performed by a member of the Zipang Mesopotamian storytelling group, Z-I-P-A-N-G, who produced a remarkable effect because she inserted a pause after the word they. So whereas all the previous answers had been given in one breath, his father and mother are not there to hold his head and his wife weeps, here we had they. The effect this produced was that the speaker was thinking about how to phrase this, implying that they were not simply describing something they'd seen, but they were choosing an image. And this meant that the statement in performance became metaphorical. So again, here we have a huge change in import brought about by performance, although not a change in the naked sense of what the words are. It's still they, it's still play, it's still at a table of gold. But the way it was performed affected what it actually meant overall, change, as I said, in import. Of course, this particular example wouldn't work in the original Sumerian for various reasons of word order, but the principle is one that works across languages and many written compositions, not the cat sat on the mat, but many things which are more complicated, more sophisticated, more interesting. So an example of this in Babylonian is a duplicitous message created by the god Ea, who was the god of wisdom. So if we go to the Gilgamesh epic in tablet with a capital T means chapter, so tablet 11 or chapter 11, we find this message, which I have a theory about, to the effect that it was so worded as to compress two utterances in the one, into one that sounded the same, like English ice cream and ice cream. You can say those as many times as you like, they are phonetically identical. When somebody says it, it's practically impossible, or in most cases, impossible to decide which of the two they're saying. Now, this, of course, is a very, very small example. But in Gilgamesh Tablet 11, we have an utterance which is nine lines long, which works like that. So if you hear it in one way, then it's a promise of food. And if you hear it in a different way, then it's a warning about the flood. So these are obviously two very different messages. And indeed, uh, they were delivered to the inhabitants of the city where the flood hero lived with the intent of persuading the people of the city to build the ark. So they were supposed to hear the promise of food and presumably not to realize the other side of the message, which effectively says, you're all going to die. So being heedless of the message's latent side, which was slightly harder to spot, they went and built the ark expecting a promise of food and then they all died. So obviously in a message like this, the manner of performance is absolutely key because the message's latent import can be brought out or concealed by the manner of performance. And even if we take a single person sitting in a room, looking at a tablet they've never seen before, a lone reciter, as we might call them, they would have to distinguish between inner sher cookie in the morning cakes and inner sher cookie by means of spells. They might not even realize that both possibilities are there. They might only think about in the morning cakes, and that's fine. That means their performance of this line would go with the first meaning. But it's very hard to perform it in a way that allows for both simultaneously. Let's look at another instance where bringing performance into the equation can change the import of a line. 
Now, if we go to this story of the poor man of Nippur, the Mesopotamian folktale, which now exists as a film, and we look at the last line, the Babylonian says, Now, that means the mayor, Chazanu, entered Eterub, crawling, Pashalati, into the city, Ana'ali, which, at least to modern aesthetic, narrative aesthetic sensibilities, is quite a boring ending. The mayor entered the city crawling. It, the story doesn't feel like it's been rounded off. However, oh, whoops, sorry, yes. If we, uh, if we instead insert a question mark after the first word, which of course we're at liberty to do because Babylonian doesn't use question marks or other punctuation, and make it Chazanu, the mayor, <laughs> he entered the city crawling. Then we have a question and answer structure in the last line, which, at least to modern aesthetic sensibilities, has a greater feeling of resolution. Something is being resolved, namely the question which was just asked, and therefore, by implication, there's a feeling of resolution which casts a pall over the whole end of the poem. I'm not saying that this is the way the line should be understood. It's quite possible there were lots of people who thought it was just the mayor entered the city crawling, not as a question. But this is the kind of thing that would probably have occurred to at least some readers. So we go back away from the question of authorial intent to the question of how different people might have responded to the line and how performance can change the import. We're now placed to finally start talking about interruption. So we've seen a number of things. We've seen how different ways that lines are delivered can change the meaning. And we've said that there are lines where probably there were different groups of people who reacted differently then as now. So this is all very relevant to the question of interruption and whether it's happened. So recapitulating, as regards interruption, it is performers who must decide if characters' utterances are complete. By performers, we essentially mean readers or any member of an audience who comes into contact with the passage. There's no ancient phrase that explicitly signals interruption, or at least that we recognize. It's something that people don't really write about. So we can't even prove that it happened, but probably different readers were free to envisage it happening if their sensibilities and the cultural norms they were invested in so allowed. So let's go and comb Babylonian literature looking for plausible instances of interruption. So we go back to the story of the poor man of Nippur that, as we know, ends with the mayor crawling back into town. The hero of our story is the poor man whose name is Gimil Ninurta. He first goes to the mayor to ask for help, but the mayor is a shady character who has him beaten up. He then goes to the king to ask for help, who's an enlightened character who helps him. And he ends up beating the mayor up three times, which is why the mayor crawls back into the city. So here are the beginnings of the conversations that the poor man has with the mayor and with the king. The poor man says, may Enlil and Nippur bless the mayor, may Adad and Nusku, these are all gods, make his offspring flourish. The mayor spoke a word to the man of Nippur, what is your crime that you bring me a present? So we have a question and an aggressive question at that from the mayor. When Gimel Minota goes to see the king, he says, noble one, pride of the people, sovereign glorified by the winged bull, at your command may I be given a chariot, so that for one day I achieve whatever I aspire to. My payment to you for my day will be a mina, that's a measure of best gold. 
And the king did not ask him, what desire of yours is this, that you would parade about in the chariot for a whole day. Now, it's rare in Babylonian literature, as indeed in modern literature, for a narrator to tell us that somebody didn't ask or say something. So it seems very likely that these two passages should be contrasted. The mayor does ask a question, and a rather aggressive one at that, whereas the king refrains from asking a question. And indeed, the king might have had even greater justification than the mayor for asking the question, so his restraint is doubly noteworthy. Let's look at Gimel Nenuta's form of address. May Endland Nippur bless the mayor, may Adad and Nusku make his offspring flourish. Now, there is nothing in the story to tell us whether he intended to carry on. Is the mayor interrupting him? Maybe yes, maybe no. We have no explicit signal. But certainly what Gimel Nenuta did was to phrase things in such a way that allowed himself to be cut off before he got to the meat of his query, which was to ask for help. Because his first two lines are syntactically complete statements. May Enlun Nippur bless the mayor. If you stop someone talking there, they have at least finished a sentence. And ditto, may Adad and Nusku make his offspring flourish. They have again produced a complete statement. So talking to the mayor, the poor man produced these blessings and the mayor cuts him off. And the poor man had, you might say, allowed him to do that by producing these complete statements that hadn't yet got in to the question. Contrast what goes off with the king. Noble one, pride of the people, sovereign glorified by the winged bull. Now this is not yet a complete sentence, it's just a string of vocatives. So if you cut someone off here, you really couldn't pretend that you'd let them say as much as they wanted to say. It would be obvious to everybody that you had interrupted them. And then he carries on. At your command, may I be given a chariot? This is what he really wants. He wants the chariot as help. And then he goes on to explain it. I think it's not a coincidence that this style of address to these two powerful people changes from the first occasion to the second occasion. I think the Gimel Minota, the poor man, has gone away and thought about it and realized that next time he doesn't want to be interrupted again. So he must make it absolutely clear that he's still speaking and he hasn't finished speaking all the way to his important request. May I be given a chariot? And if they interrupt me at that point, well, at least I've said it, as it were. Uh, whereas over here, he hadn't yet thought of this strategy, and so he could be cut off without it being obvious that he had more to say. Let's now go to the so-called Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 6, where Gilgamesh, who has recently returned from a series of semi-military triumphs in Lebanon in the Cedar Forests, receives the advances of the goddess Ishtar, who wants to make him a bridegroom. She says, come Gilgamesh, you be the bridegroom. Grant me your fruits, I insist. You shall be my husband and I will be your wife. Ishtar is a very forceful character. Let me harness for you a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold, whose wheels are gold and whose horns are amber. You shall have in harness storm lions and huge mules. Come into our house with sense of cedar. When you come into our house, doorway and throne shall kiss your feet. Kings, courtiers and nobles shall be bowed down beneath you. They shall bring you tribute, all the produce of mountain and land. Your nanny goats shall bear triplets and your ewes twins. Your donkeyfoal under load shall outpace a mule. At the chariot your horse shall gallop majestically, at the yoke your ox shall acquire no rival. Gilgamesh opened his mouth to speak, 
saying to the Lady Ishtar, if indeed I were to take your hand in marriage, what follows from Gilgamesh is an emphatic and rather rude rejection of her advances. He chides her, he scorns her, and she goes off in a huff. So this is the translation of Andrew George from his critical edition of 2003. And the question which interests us today is, is Gilgamesh interrupting Ishtar? Again, we have no explicit signals one way or the other, but we can at least develop different readings uh, and work out the implications of the different choices that we might make. Of course, going back to performers, somebody who was actually reading this out loud would have to uh, use their intonation to make it clear to themselves and or to others whether she had finished speaking or not. In English, we'd do that with a raised voice. In Babylonian, they might have had different strategies. So what's the structure of Ishtar's advances? Well, you be the bridegroom, you shall be the husband and I will be your wife. That's a very matter of fact statement of what she wants. Then she moves on to the chariot and it looks like she's thinking of how he will come to the house because the chariot will take him to the house and then when he comes into the house, these various things will happen. So Ishtar starts out thinking of the chariot as a means of transport because the chariot will take him to the house. Then she thinks about what will happen when he comes in and there'll be kings, courtiers and nobles who bow down beneath him. They bring him the tribute, all the produce of mountain and land. Then we suddenly go on to these nanny goats and all these magnificent animals. And as far as I can tell, the connection here is a mental one between the produce of mountain and land, which gets her thinking about things relating to the land, which will come to Gilgamesh if he agrees to marry her. So the nanny goats and the ewes. And then once with this jump, Ishtar has got onto the subject of the animals. Well, then she continues in that vein with the donkey foal, the mule and the horse and the ox. What's interesting about this is that if we put ourselves in the position of Ishtar making her offer, she hasn't built to a rhetorically climactic ending. You could argue that in Babylonian, this business of not acquiring a rival, Shanina Ayyashi in the original language, is magniloquent, so that would be a bit of a rhetorical flourish. But the speech doesn't come round, it doesn't have a conclusion, it doesn't seem complete to me. So I think there's a case you can make that Gilgamesh is interrupting Ishtar. And again, I don't know whether this is authorially intentional, but I think there would have been people who saw this and performed it accordingly because they had the latitude to do so. And we can contrast Ishtar's offer to Gilgamesh with a different marriage offer, a much shorter one, from the poem Nergal and Ereshkigal from the site of Tel El Amarna in Egypt, where a few Babylonian literary tablets were found. So in the palace, Nergal seized Ereshkigal by her hair. He bent her down from the throne to the ground to cut off her head. And clearly we're to understand that she says, don't kill me, my brother, let me say a word to you. When Nergal heard her, he released his grip. She was weeping and sobbing. And we're to understand she was saying, you be my husband, I will be your wife. Let me make you, let me make you hold dominion over the vast netherworld for Ereshkigal is indeed the lady of the netherworld. Let me set the tablets of wisdom in your hand. You be lord, I be lady. This you be lord, I be lady is very similar to you be husband and I be wife. So here we have a nice recapitulation of the ideas she wants to put across. And that's what we're missing in Ishtar's speech. And that's a reason I would put forward for it being possible to make a case that Ishtar is being interrupted by Gilgamesh.
So we can make a case that Ishtar hasn't finished speaking and that Gilgamesh is interrupting her. We can't prove that this is authorially intentional, but we can say that there would have been audiences who thought of this. And of course it has both narrative and theological implications because people interrupting gods is quite a major thing to happen. It makes Gilgamesh even ruder uh, in his dealings with Ishtar. So it's part of the characterization of Gilgamesh. Let's move on now to this poem, Error, which is all about the god of plague. Error, being the god of plague, wants to run through the land killing everybody, and his right-hand man, the god Ishum, is on hand to try and calm him down. So in the first tablet, or chapter, he says, Lord Error, why have you planned evil for the gods? You've plotted to overthrow countries and to destroy their people. Will you not turn back? Meaning, will you not relent? And the reply is, Ishum, be silent and listen to my speech. In tablet three, Ishum hears error declaring his intention to go and slaughter a load of people. Oh, we seem to have some interference, but not to worry. And then he says, Woe to my people. Hello? I'll carry on talking. Um, he says, he, the poem tells us he felt compassion and said to himself, woe to my people again. So we still seem to have some interference. If everybody in the call could mute themselves, I think that would be advantageous. Um, so he felt compassion and said to himself, woe to my people against whom error rages, whom the warrior Nergal, blah, 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 break his arms are not too weak to slay them. His net is spread to overwhelm them. So first we have Isham saying something to himself. Then we have him speaking out loud and again saying, how could you plot evil for gods and men? But Era isn't impressed by this and he simply says, you know the decisions of the Igigi, the councils of the Anunnaki. So it's quite plausible in tablet one that Isham should be interrupted because he's really only managed to say a few words and he's cut off indeed with a command to be silent and listen to Hera's speech. Then over here, we know he had a lot of things he was thinking, but he only really got as far as he had previously with something that sounded a bit like a reprimand. How could you plot evil for gods and men? And he gets cut off again. Ah, yes. Um, but then later on in the poem, Uh, whoops, my apologies, I think I'm missing a slide. Um, hmm. Right, well, I can tell you all about that another time, um, but there is reason to think that later in the poem, um, Isham changes tactics like the poor man did in The Poor Man of Nippur, and he delivers to Error a much more conciliatory speech where he starts off saying, Error, I understand why you want to do this. And of course, it makes perfect sense. There's the God of Plague. You want to go and kill a load of people. But I wonder whether you might consider revisiting the parameters of your decision. And then he can speak for longer and he doesn't get cut off as soon as he had um, earlier on. So this is a, a, another instance in which we can see characters changing their behavior, possibly related to corruption over the course of a composition. So a final thing to think about is speech formulae. We've already seen a couple of places um, where we have things like so-and-so opened their mouth to speak and said to so-and-so. And indeed, in Babylonian literature, we have lots and lots of these. So character speech is very often introduced by standard formulae. 
not all were these, to wit Nergal and Ebeshkigal, where she just started speaking, but very often we have so-and-so opened his or her mouth and spoke saying so-and-so, another one is so-and-so says to him or her to so-and-so, e.g. Jack says to him or her to Jill, and indeed Babylonian narratives are full of them. The question is, if we have a composition where interruptions might be happening, and if the composition uses these different formulae, is there a correlation between which formula gets used and whether interruption is more or less likely to happen in a passage? So let's look at Gilgamesh, which being a long poem, we have over 2000 preserved lines, affords us quite a lot of occasions to examine this. So is one formula more associated with interruption than the other? So let's divide all the cases into likely or neutral or unlikely or impossible. And you might wonder, well, why is it impossible for a character to be interrupting another? And here we have a case where Enkidu, who was previously a wild man, but as a result of six days and seven nights of lovemaking has become a human being. So he was diminished, his running was not as before, but now he had a reason, he was wide of understanding. I should say, this is again from Andrew George's critical edition. He came back and sat down at the feet of the harlot, the lady who humanized him, watching the harlot, observing her features. Then his ears heard what the harlot was speaking, as the harlot said to him, to Enkidu, you are handsome, Enkidu, and it is patently impossible for the harlot to be interrupting Enkidu here, because Enkidu has only just learned to speak and it's all very new to him, and these are the first words that are being spoken, so that really can't be an interruption. So, if we go through the whole of Gilgamesh, looking at all the instances where we change from one speaker to another, and we try and um, align them on a gradient of probability of interruption, we get this distribution. So these are our two formulae, Pashu Ipushma Ik Abbi or Anna Izakar Anna. The blue line in the middle is where interruption is possible, but not necessary. So this is the most neutral of the lines, if you like. And then down here, we have interruption very strongly likely, or interruption sort of more likely than not. And then here, less likely to have it, and here impossible to have it. So if you mentally take out the blue line, although the pattern doesn't work perfectly because there are these two outliers up here, you actually end up with quite a nice distribution where one formula is used where it's less likely to have an interruption and one formula is used where it's more likely to have an interruption. There are various ways this pattern can be interpreted, but it is at least a clue that the kinds of questions that we're asking made some sort of sense um, to ancient audiences and poets, which is after all what we'd expect. So in sum, um, if we adopt a focus on interruption for Babylonian narrative poetry, this encourages us to think about how poets and others might have thought about the interactions between characters, how characters related to each other. It encourages us to look out for potential signals, e.g. use of formulae, and also to see um, how character behavior interacts with the possibilities that we may or may not envisage. And all of this happens under the rubric of performance, meaning that range of choices of the meaning which we can attribute to the written word, which is not inherent, but potential in it. And with that, I finish. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, this uh, is amazing. And, you know, I've learned so much from it. Uh, thank thanks a lot. Uh, and actually, you've shown us uh, the necessity 
to come up uh, with this narratology of sorts uh, of, of ancient writing because, um, um, well, I, I'm not familiar very much with uh, ancient Middle Eastern uh, poetry, but uh, uh, I've taught quite a lot of uh, medieval uh, epics. And um, I think the threshold readers always have is that there's a different economy of narration going on. Uh, the economy, a different narrative economy than the, the one they are used to. And um, I've never seen so much in, in Dixit formally uh, than, than you, you've teased out of the material. It, it, this is really amazing. And um, so can you say briefly where this is going to? Is this uh, going to be part of a new book or uh, what, what is the, the final aim of, of, of your research into interruption? Oh gosh, um, well, it, it, it's a chapter within a book of essays about Babylonian literature. Um, mm. And I can't remember whether interruption is a subtopic of performance or performance is a subtopic of interruption, but the two things work together as it were. Can I ask what you mean by narrative economy? Well, uh, for example, what is told and what is not told. And because uh, reading, uh, telling and reading is always a translation process. Uh, a text tells you things and doesn't tell you other things. And actually in the mind of the reader, there's always this translation process going on. Uh, what, what was actually said or what is the meaning of it? Uh, and um, as we know, it changes over time. And uh, this makes, for example, the reading of epics so awkward to particularly to, to students because, uh, for example, in medieval uh, epics, you have um, uh, what is called Schneiderstrophen in German. So the tailor, the tailor stances where you, you get a very detailed description of, of equipment of, of a warrior, for example, which is extremely boring to us, but it would make sense uh, to a contemporary audience. And I guess uh, this might be the same uh, uh, um, with, with a Babylonian audience, uh, with an ancient uh, Middle Eastern audience that, you know, um, there's a different translation process going on, what is told and uh, what can be retrieved from it. And, and uh, so, um, and um, I guess this might help us to, to bridge a little bit the alienness uh, of, of, of uh, ancient narrative, which basically I, I, when, when you teach it, uh, this is something uh, you've, you always experience with students that it's, it's very alien to them. And because, you know, it doesn't work like a, like a soap opera or a novel or all other formats of narrative uh, they are used to. And I guess uh, this might be very interesting to, uh, to come up with this, with a Babylonian narratology of sorts. Uh, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. The exercise of working out the distribution of attention and what governs it, um, the potential for telescoping um, are all essential parts of the experience of learning how to read an alien literature. Um, mm -hmm. We've got a long way to go. Um, and part of course in Babylonian, so much energy has to go into textual reconstruction. You know, I've been showing you these translations as if they just appeared uh, from the moon, but they are in fact bits of broken clay that scholars over generations have put together and reassembled and translated and said, oh, this is the same as that and I can join it and now I have a complete line. Um, so there's an enormous endeavor going on behind the scenes that most people mm -hmm. devote their entire working lives to. Um, so 
it's really and, it's more recently that it's become possible to start doing things like this because <clears throat> the, the editions have been produced. <clears throat> and, and there's this ongoing interest in Gilgamesh. Uh, where does it come from? Uh, why does Gilgamesh still speak uh, to us so much? And I, I've seen over the last 20 years, there have been so many new attempts to translate it into foreign languages. Uh, for example, into German, um, uh, the very accomplished Germanist and, and poet, Raoul Schrott, uh, tried a new translation into German, which was groundbreaking because it tried uh, to bring back uh, poetry into, into Gilgamesh a little bit more than uh, the academic translations of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, that, that existed before. So what, what do you think, what, what, what is the appeal? Uh, why, why is there so much interest still in, in Babylonian writing? Gilgamesh is an extremely interesting one. Um, this is something I, I'm still thinking about and I, I can't give a definitive answer to. I think on the one hand, obviously, there's the intrinsic interest of the material, which goes some way to explaining it, but not the entire way, because there's lots of great poems in the world, but not all of them are as famous as Gilgamesh. Um, it's about love and loss, so there are great themes in there. It's also about the journey, which is a motif that interests people. Um, it re received a massive boost back in the day, because when it was discovered that it contained the flood story, there was the association with Genesis, and then half the world thought, oh, this means that the Bible is a Babylonian fairy tale, and the other half thought, oh, this means Babylonia proves the Bible is literally true. Um, so in the 1870s, Gilgamesh, under a different name, it was Nimrod at the time, became mm -hmm. known. So it had a big boost to start with. Um, I think there's also effects of the academic industry. So in America, comparative literature courses normally start with the old yes, that's true. Gilgamesh. And so there are loads of people who in their first week at university learn about Gilgamesh, which stays with them. I also think it's the name actually, um, and call me silly, but I've often thought that part of Donald Trump's success in America was down to the name Trump. Because mm -hmm. subliminally, oh, well, you know, he trumps, he does better, fantastic, I'll vote for him, say people, or think people, or don't think people, which is more insidious. And Gilgamesh is a word that, it's, it's a one, it's a, it's a word that everybody can pronounce, it works in all languages, it sounds the same in all languages. It's fairly easy to say, and it has a certain oomph. It almost has a rhythm. You know, mm -hmm. Bilu. Bilu is a much is less satisfying in the mouth than Gilgamesh. So you can't say people saying, "Oh, you know, I was reading Bilu last night. I really enjoyed it." But yeah, I was reading Gilgamesh last night. It, it flows better. Um, oh, there's a question coming. Um, so that those are some of the factors. Um, but there's probably also the fascination of recovery. You know, this idea of a voice from the distant past, which is being found out um, a small part of the time. But it would be very interesting one day to do a project and actually ask people who are not academics, have you heard of Gilgamesh? And if so, in what context and why does it interest you? Um, that would be a very worthwhile thing to do. Uh, I have two questions here. Uh, Katya raised her, her hand. So could you please uh, uh, send a question to me uh, with the chat function? Uh, I have also a question by Quiver uh, saying, I'm just wondering if Martin can say something about the phrase in the Epic of Gilgamesh, when Gilgamesh, uh, quote, opened his mouth to speak. Is this found within Babylonian literature or is this a, an example of performance or showing uh, he's about to interrupt? Thank you, that's a very good question. So this phrase, so-and-so opened his or her mouth to speak is a standard phrase that you find in different compositions. And it's one of the two formulae you find in Gilgamesh. And I was wondering, um, given we have two different formulae introducing um, how people speak, 
might there be a distribution, a correlation, something to be worked out? And that table sort of suggests that one of the two formulae is more closely aligned with contexts which are susceptible of interpretation as interruptions, whereas the other formula is more closely aligned with contexts which are less susceptible of interpretation as interruptions. Um, whether this means that you know, the poet actually sat down and used it as a clue to their readers, I don't know. It could also possibly, it might've had overtones of slightly more aggressive, slightly less aggressive, more docile, less docile, more subservient, less subservient. So it might not be a one-to-one -one correspondence with interruption, but it seems to be part of the same trend. That, that's as far as I can go for the moment. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Um, uh, Katia, did you have a question? Or, uh, I, you raised your hand. Uh, would you like to say something? Then please uh, send it to me as a chat. Um, if not, uh, then, oh, there's another one I can see. Yes. Uh, is the Babylonian vocabulary rich when it comes to different verbs of speaking? Meaning uh, if there is no word for to interrupt, are there other verbs missing, like to whisper and, and so on? It's, uh, so it's about basically what is called, uh, what uh, the Saussure would call valeur. So uh, are there words missing that are we have, for example, uh, in, in terms of speaking? Well, we have three verbs which are often just translated as to speak. So abu, zakaru, and dababu. To whisper is lachashu. Um, to shout out is shasu or ragabu. So I think in all domains, Babylonian vocabulary tends to be less rich than modern day English vocabulary, except maybe when you're talking about sheep's livers. But, um, but there's a, a, a good enough range out there that they're not just making do with two words for everything. Sorry. I think in the Thousand and One Nights, um, it always says hala, he said. And it gets translated as, you know, so-and-so enjoined, interrupted, shouted, declaimed, proclaimed, asserted, encouraged, interjected, objected. And it just always says, Hala. He or she mm -hmm. said, he said, Hala, she said. Um, but Babylonian isn't quite as, um, as pared down as the Thousand One Nights choose to be in that particular context. Um, but I, I have a, a, a last technical question if, um... Well, I, I assume that, of course, the, the basis for Gilgamesh as for other epics is oral, and uh, we have we have not one author, but a, a collective, basically, of, of of potential authors and 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 people conveying uh, the the the, uh, uh, the epic and so forth. So, how is it possible then to basically to to locate uh, these phrases because you know they might be shifting of course throughout tradition and they they might come uh, uh, at a, in a certain position uh, just by just uh, through random you know a random kind of uh, uh, decision there's always uh, white noise of course there's, there's such a thing as white noise when it comes to to epics and and their final fixation uh, in written form so uh, how can you react to these kind of uh, uncertainties that are always there when, when we have uh, when we're dealing with uh, with, with old uh, 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 epics uh, with poetry uh, of that kind? That's an issue um, which varies from one composition to another. So, for example, so far error is only known from manuscripts from a fairly small time period, um, and in fact, there's a theory it was composed under the reign of a particular king. Um, Isar Haddon, so everything would be much more concentrated. Gilgamesh, you're quite right, is diffuse. Mm -hmm. I mean, the manuscripts go back to 1900 uh, BC, and in the second millennium BC, um, 
there's much more variability. By the time you get to about 800 BCE, then you have a so-called standard version whose text across manuscripts tends to be quite consistent. Um, so certainly there might have been all sorts of accretions that were built into it along the way, but it doesn't seem to be the case that people are just chucking in things at random synchronically. Uh, once it's achieved its canonical or pseudo-canonical form, that form is maintained. Um, so I suppose then it becomes a question of what are we studying? You know, the, the, the version which people knew we can take as a single thing and study it as a single thing. But historically, we have to recognize that that might have been composed of different layers, which might indeed incorporate um, different traditions. And those outliers I pointed out, I mean, who knows? Maybe the two outliers go back to a tradition which, was, which ran counter to how uh, the formula was being used elsewhere. Hard to know. Okay, that's wonderful. Uh, do we have more questions or um, let me check briefly? No, I guess uh, uh, that's it. Basically, we are almost there. Uh, and so Martin, what remains for me is uh, just to uh, say a cordial thank you uh, for, for this very inspiring talk. And uh, actually it shows the full range we have uh, going from from ancient Babylonian um, uh, poetry until our day in our school. And I guess uh, this kind of um, uh, conversation and dialogue uh, along and, and between disciplines uh, can be very prolific uh, when it comes to research. So thank you very, very much uh, and welcome to Trinity again. Uh, and uh, we all hope to meet you in person uh, soon when, when the pandemic is over. Thanks a lot. And thanks a lot to our audience. Indeed. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.